Apparently, I always choose to speak when the dads are looking after the kids. <laughs> I hadn't noticed, but um, they keep saying, oh, you're speaking again and we won't hear you. I'm like, you wouldn't listen to me anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. I'll make sure that they've all listened to it online later on, <laughs> right? Um, so since I spoke last, I think I started, I'm a, I'm, I think it's been this long. I started my PhD at Purdue University, and um, that was, so I've done one semester of that. I'm still going, so that's good, right? I've got like four and a half years to go. <laughs> um, absolutely loving it. Um, and uh, one of the things that I've found about um, being I would say back in a yeah, completely secular environment, it really is. I mean, you wouldn't expect to find such a deeply secular environment in the middle of Indiana. <laughs> there are definitely people of faith there, but it, the, uh, faith is not encouraged as part of anything except if it's in a church group meeting or um, event. So it has been um, a quite a shift for me, a kind of cultural shift to be um, back in an environment that does not talk about God at all, and um, God is not part of any scenario that they, um, that they have. So um, I'm finding, I found that challenging, but I've also found it really great, because I think that um, you do start when you're in a, in a Christian environment all the time, you do start to forget how most of the world lives, right? And you forget how most of the world thinks and what they are trying to base their lives on and how they're trying to create a basis for their lives um, that gives them some kind of hope and purpose in the world. And so um, I've been doing lots of thinking about that. And in this series on worship that we are um, working through in the next few months, um, they've asked me to do a couple of talks, and uh, this one is uh, supposed to be on liturgy. And I realize actually that some people, liturgy, they, you might not even really know what that is. I know some young people that I've talked to don't really know what that is. Um, and because I grew up in a British, uh, in South, you know, South Africa was a British colony, um, and so there's, there was a kind of British framework for church, um, and then obviously in England, the liturgy is something that's really a big part of church culture there. And moving to America, I was really surprised at how many churches are um, non-denominational, perhaps, um, and are very, I would say, informal, but not necessarily. So I have been to some non-denominational churches in America where they are actually very formal, but they don't use prayers out of a book. And yet it was amazing how their prayers were still quite formulaic, and their services are you know, they had developed a formula, which um, was probably out of habit more than anything. Um, so um, there definitely is this uh, tendency, I think, in all churches to want to 
to use some kind of pattern in the way that we have um, communal gatherings to worship. Um, and so liturgy is um, not necessarily the, th the thing that you think about. Maybe you guys think about the Lutheran church or the Catholic church. It, it's, I'm not talking tonight necessarily just about the prayer book that you would use in some churches in the back of the pew. Um, tonight I want to talk a little more broadly than that about um, the sense of pattern, using pattern in our worship, structure, um, but also not just in worship, but in the worship of our life. Um, so a little broader than what you might think of when you think of liturgy. Could you use some water? Yes, thanks. And so um, one of the things that I just, it just really touched me in the service this evening, I was thinking about liturgy and what, why is liturgy something that we even want or need? Why is a pattern or um, ritual something that comes up in worship for us all the time? And I saw little Liesl Dressbach sitting at the back during the worship tonight, and she was sitting with her friends, and um, she, they were sharing snacks, right? So it's like hand in the one bag, and then hand in the other bag, and they all like do that with each other. But in between, she would take the snack, put it in her mouth, and we were singing one of the songs, and if, once she had the snack in her mouth, and that was done, right, she would then go, she would close her eyes, and she was going like this, and I was like, what is she doing? And then I realized she was doing it to the music. And I was like, she's worshiping. She was like, she was worshiping. And it was something, I know, right? You guys are proud. <laughs> um, but it, it reminded me of when my kids were little as well, because when worship is part of the daily rhythm of life in a family, children very quickly pick up um, oh, this song, this music reminds me of what it feels like when I'm in God's presence. And so even if you're eating a snack, it's like I'm in God's presence. Like she had gone into that place of experiencing God. She, I mean, she, can't, she just speaks, right? So, um, and it's a recognizable response. You see this in people of all ages when they're worshiping. There's a, a look they get on their face, right? And she has that. And that was just a little sign for me um, of how repeating the ways that we do things can also be really helpful in bringing us to that place when we need it. So, um, there are times when we in, uh, intentionally go into God's presence and we intentionally pray. There are other times in life where things aren't really conducive to that. We might be uh, on a train or in a crowd of people and we're feeling anxious or we might have got some bad news but we've got no one to share that with. Situations, even maybe you're at the workplace and you're feeling, I can't do this. This, this job is hard, too hard for me. I don't know what to do. When you've developed 
um, practices around coming into God's presence, and they've become something that you can do without thinking consciously or trying too hard, those then become um, precious gifts, really, for the times when you don't have what it, it in you to go into that place. Um, you have words to pray when you don't know what words to pray. Um, the power of God will be present to you when you're feeling that he is, where is he to be found? Um, and I'm sure that you have all experienced this in one way or another, whether it's through a specific prayer or through a worship song that you can put on when you're feeling really depressed or low. Um, we each have those ways. Um, and tonight I want to talk about why that's important and um, how we can build that into our lives um, because it really is a gift from the Lord. So um, obviously the main questions that we ask when we talk about something like particularly practices that um, seem kind of man-made perhaps, like in a book or music that we've written or whatever it is, did Jesus do this? <laughs> That's what we always ask, right? Did Jesus do this? Um, and the cool thing about um, reading about Jesus' life is that his, you can see that his life is soaked in the scripture and the practice of um, the, Jewish, the Jewish tradition. Um, and there is a ton written about uh, how Jesus' prayers, how his words, his practices, how they reflect um, the Jewish culture and tradition and um, how important that is because a lot of um, the truth that we know about God is built upon what he revealed about himself to the Israelites and to the Jews. And the, and the canon of Old Testament scripture is all about that. Um, and so that's something you can do research on. Um, the, the thing that we are most aware of, I think, often is the Last Supper in the Bible and how that reflected the Passover meal and how Jesus took that practice, that ritual, and took the prayers of that ritual and he transformed them into a message about what he was about to do for us. And then the church took that up afterwards and has, um, through the the supper, the Lord's Supper in church, when we share bread and wine, he said, remember this every time that you do that. That's right, do this in remembrance of me. And so, um, yes, liturgy, ritual, the practices of the church, yes, Jesus did do these things. He did not come and say, right, it's a free-for-all, do whatever you want. <laughs> he continued um, certain practices very clearly for us. And, but I think that if we look at just Jesus, um, we can get quite a small, um, narrow picture of what uh, the life that Jesus was living with his disciples and how he wanted them to continue um, in these practices that would help them to stay connected with God. Um, 
And so the early church, we know, had practices that uh, people, archaeologists, um, they still find evidence of early church practices that were very particular. Um, some of them were obviously documents. Um, so they had songs, they had hymns, uh, they had obviously letters. So the letters of Paul in the beginning were obviously written to groups of Christians. Um, and in fact, the canon of, New Test of the New Testament was brought together after a couple of hundred years from these writings that were being sent around to the different groups in the early church. And what they would do is, um, and we know this because the, uh, what they call the church fathers, so there were some um, uh, writers, thinkers, um, there were uh, sometimes priests in the church, um, wrote about how the early church used to practice um, their worship together. And so there's, there's one called Justin Martyr, um, there's another one called St. Basil, <laughs> um, they have some great names, Basil of Caesarea, um, and they talk about this kind of un, what they called unwritten teaching. And um, so there's very specific passages that talk about how to, you know, how to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but then they will also talk about, well, we say this prayer, or um, we say this particular prayer before we celebrate the Supper because in these unwritten teachings, this has been passed down to us from the disciples that were with Jesus. So there's this real sense of a kind of historic um, passing on over time of certain practices that the church in a lot of places today still practices with the same words, with the same practice as the first churches. I find that really exciting, but I'm a his historical-minded type person. Some people would be like, I really don't care. <laughs> like, it's just like old stuff. Um, but um, what I'm wanting you to see is that the church has always treasured these practices together. And so it's not just something that you decide to do on your own. There's also something about um, being part of a community that worships in a certain way um, every week, maybe more often, maybe slightly less. And so is liturgy really relevant for the modern world? You know, in the past, liturgies um, such as the Apostles' Creed were written by the church to help people who were illiterate to learn their theology. And this is in, you know, in times gone by when there were arguments about things like, is the Trinity something that is um, real? Or is it something that is not real, it's not true? And they would have church councils and they would discuss these things in the light of scripture and teaching. And the church then would write these passages which stated the truth that they had decided scripture, you know, this is what scripture says about God and this is the truth. 
And these things were not just lightly written. They were written with huge amounts of prayer and discussion amongst um, godly people. And, um, the, and in those times, saying those creeds once a week out loud together was really important for people who could not read anything. They couldn't read scripture for themselves. Uh, they really just knew what people told them. But these passages that they could repeat got these truths deep into their hearts so that they were there, they were right inside. They weren't just something that they heard once or twice. But do we need that today, you know, in, in this day and age when we can look things up so easily, when we've got people we can talk to, when we've got education, do we need those types of creeds and so on? And I think that, you know, we can see that in some churches, like our church, you don't, we don't really see the need to recite a creed once a week um, because we, f- we feel that most of the people here Um, would agree on the basic truths of Christianity. And if they don't, we have community where there's an openness to be able to challenge each other, to discuss those things, to question, to say, look, here's what the Bible says. Here's a book, read this book. You know, and I think we're all doing that all the time with each other. We're always kind of um, engaging with faith and engaging with how we think through our faith. That's right. <laughs> I've got a helper. <laughs> um, and so I want to move on from what this idea of liturgy in the church, the kind of basic idea of liturgy, and just talk about what place does pattern and ritual and repeating words have for us in our, in our faith today? in our personal practice, in our practice together. And I think particularly for the charismatic church, we, we would probably call ourselves a charismatic church, although we tend to uh, be a little different because we have a lot of different faith backgrounds in our leadership. So we, um, we tend to worship in a very um, free, open way, people are encouraged to do what they like uh, when they're worshipping as long as they're not um, hurting anyone else (laughs) too badly, Um, in a way that's kind, basically. Um, And yeah, and we, we do have some kind of pattern in our service, but we don't say certain prayers every week. Um, And I think that the danger in that Um, is we can be defined in our faith, um, how we feel our faith is thriving or not, by how we feel our connection with God is. And so you see the kind of language that comes out is, well, how close are you feeling to God? Or are you feeling far away from God? And I feel like that kind of language is dangerous because first of all, it um, places the attention and the focus on how you're feeling about God and then defining how he's relating to you through how you're feeling. Um, and he didn't intend for us ever to be that way. It's, that's just not how he wants us to think about him. 
Obviously, there's lots of feeling language in Scripture, but there's never anything about, well, God changes depending on how you're feeling. He doesn't change, and how, how we are in position to him does not change. Um, in fact, I wanted to specifically challenge this assumption that God's nearness to us is dependent on anything. It's not dependent on anything. So I want to read a scripture tonight that really just underlines that because I want it to be the basis for what I say going forward. And it's Romans chapter 8. Um, and you guys will know it well from 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, or are persecuted or hungry or destitute, or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I think it's really important for us to realize that um, feelings are not something that um, define God's relationship with us. Um, not even our sin or any evil can separate us from God's love. And so what's really important is that we realize our lives are built on certain things that hold up or fall down. And I, I believe that God has given us words as a scaffolding for our lives. And what I mean by that is not just um, the words that he spoke, it's not um, scripture necessarily, although that's part of it, words, in scripture it's the Greek word logos, 
the word. In John, Jesus is the word. The idea of words is um, a philosophical idea. It's an idea of what holds us in who we are, in how we understand and interpret the world, in how we relate to each other, in how we think, in how we process what we go through in life. Words are what make us human and what make us spirit. And Jesus is the ultimate word. So he is this expression of God himself in the world. And um, just as words are the scaffold to our life, we need to take those words and build that scaffold that is, that is based on the truth of who God is and who we are. Because there's other places that words come, right? We are bombarded with them every day, and it's not just from outside, but it's the words inside us that are constantly flowing, telling us stories. <laughs> And so this is why I believe liturgy or um, set prayers, scripture, words that God has given us can be used as a scaffold in our life to help keep us solid when the words in the world are telling us things that we don't understand, telling us things that hurt, telling us things that make us hopeless, afraid, when people are saying words to us that are full of rejection, are telling us things about our identity that we, that we, don't, we don't know if they're true or not, are they right? Is this who I really am? I see it in Jesus because he used scripture in that way when he was being questioned about his identity. He spoke in the desert about who God is. He used scripture in that way and I, I see it as well when he was arguing with the Pharisees. He used scripture. And so that's the first place that we start is finding scripture that we can learn so that it becomes part of who we are. It's something that um, there's certain movements in the church that are really strong on scripture memorization. I'm sure that some of you older, I don't know if they're still around, but some of the older people will remember the Navigators. Do you remember the Navigators? Um, <laughs> and when I was a new Christian, one thing that I, I had a hunger to know the Bible, and I think a lot of new Christians that I've spoken to have said this, like they become a Christian or they have a new experience of God and they just like, they can't stop reading the Bible. They just wanna know it all. And I went through a really strong period of that in my early faith, when I was in my early 20s, where I couldn't get enough. And so I would just, I just absorbed it. 
but I was frustrated because I, I wanted to know some of these things. So I bought this really cute little, this is the days before the internet and apps and stuff, right? So they mailed me this little envelope and it was full of these little cards that had the little navigator stamp on the back. And on it, it had scriptures and a process for learning them. And I think I spent about six months learning these verses. And do you know what's amazing is that after that, I stopped doing it. I just, after a while, I kind of moved on. And yet those verses are still, like, they just come. It's like, and this is like 25 years ago. They, it's like they are built into me. Um, and I found that so important for me because those scriptures will come to my mind when I'm not even thinking about them, when I'm praying for people. Um, an incredible resource, but also this feeling of I have truth inside my subconscious <laughs> that can't, like, you can't get rid of it unless I had like a brain injury or something. <laughs> Maybe it will still be there. But, um, but that, that is a, there's something that um, when you're in an anxious place, knowing scripture like it just comes up is so comforting. You don't have to go and look it up. There's a verse that you've said over and over and that becomes like a message in your life, that, that, like a constant through the hard times, that truth is there. Um, so I would encourage you, if you've never done um, scripture memorization, there's tons of really cool stuff. There's actually, um, if you look it up online, there's a subscription service now, of course, for millennials. <laughs> Gen Z can have it too. Um, once a month, they'll send you a little kit and it'll have a scripture on it. It'll have some teaching so you know like the context of it and everything. And then they'll send you like little, get, little things to go with, so it'll be like a little keychain with the verse on it, and some stickers, and <laughs> I think it's like totally American. <laughs> it's like, how can we make money out of the Bible? <laughs> but anyway, I know, I mustn't be cynical, because I saw it and I was like, this would be really cool, like I would totally buy this, because it's a really fun way to make and then like you get it for a month and you know if I don't do this this month then I'm gonna miss out because next month another one comes, right? So there's fun things, look them up. Um, and I think that there's lots of other ways that the, tr the truth can become a scaffold in that way and I always feel like scripture is the truth, right? And if there's things in it you can't or don't understand, either find a book on it or find someone that you know. We have so many great, really intelligent people in our community. Just ask them, hey, this verse is really confusing. What does it mean to you? Like, can, you, can we talk about this? Um, and, you know, that's what Jesus did with his disciples all the time. They were always asking him questions, and he, was, he loved that. There's a couple of other things, though, that I wanted to bring up because it's, it's not just that kind of um, scriptural memorization that's important. I think that there's other things that um, the community of Christ has practiced over 
the centuries. They can be really helpful. And so there are, um, in the more traditional uh, denominations, they have books like the Book of Common Prayer is one, which is an Episcopalian, I think, in this country. And you don't have to worry, like the book, the common prayer book will not have weird political liberal stuff in it, just so you know. <laughs> like you don't have to worry. The prayer books are, they're written from scripture. So um, sermons and books and that kind of stuff might have stuff in that you don't agree with or whatever, but the prayer books from any denomination, I would say, except maybe like the cults, <laughs> the, the regular denominations that we trust, you all know what they are. Their prayer books will have prayers in, and they are all really based on, I would say, from six, the 1600s, what the church was praying then. And if you go further back than that, there may be a slight difference in what the Eastern Orthodox Church is praying from the Western Roman Church. Those will be different. But the prayers are similar. They're so similar. And what's amazing about it is you read these prayers and you're like, I recognize that. Where is that from? And you'll realize, oh, it's from the Bible. It's, it's, it's a prayer someone prayed in the Bible. And that's something that, I mean, I've studied the early church a lot. This is something that I'm really passionate about and, I, and I'm doing my PhD on the Reformation and how scriptural language changed over that time for people in their prayers and that kind of thing. So I've seen a lot of this. And what I'm always amazed by is there's a, real, there's a really strong stewardship of what Christians have prayed. They, they don't change it which is amazing to me because I'm like, you could have done anything you wanted, but there's something about these words that they have taken from the Old and the New Testaments and they've kept praying them and they've kept praying them. And thousands and millions of people have prayed them every week. And so there's prayers like the Magnificat, which is Mary's prayer, which she prays when she finds out that she's gonna fall pregnant with by the Holy Spirit, and she's, you know, she prays to the Lord, and that prayer that she prayed has been prayed in churches for millennia. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. And that prayer will be the same in any prayer book that you look at, and it comes right out of the Bible. Another one is Zechariah's prayer, which is the prayer he prayed when he found out that um, John the Baptist was going to be his son. And that prayer is something that um, is prayed in the Catholic Church every day as part of their daily office. And so you hear this prayer and it becomes part of who you are. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has come to his people to set them free. And it becomes like a, it wells up inside you. It's no longer something that you're reading. It's something that you're praying with the church and you're praying through the centuries with the, the voices of the saints every day have been doing that. Isn't that incredible? I just love that, that they are speaking that truth out every day. 
Aaron's blessing is one that all churches use. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. That prayer came from the priest's blessing in the wilderness with Moses in the tent. And it was called the raising of hands blessing because they would raise their hands. And they called it the waving blessing <laughs> because they waved. And I love that. We're praying the same words that they prayed in the desert with Moses. That, that's just incredible to me. And there is real power in those words. And so I want to encourage you to, if, especially if you're finding that um, faith for you is feeling a little... Um, like you're on a sea and you're, you're not, you don't feel steady in it, if your faith is feeling like, well, one day I'm really struggling, and the next day, wow, I've, this morning in my quiet time, the Lord really spoke to me, and I'm feeling so encouraged, and then the next day, you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> that's okay. That's life. It's like that every day. That's our feelings. But if that's something that you're experiencing, and it's making you feel unsteady, like, like a tent with, with ropes rather than a building with a steel structure that's right there, right, a scaffold. I would encourage you to maybe start finding practices, prayers, music, and it doesn't have to be ancient stuff. It can be the things that really speak to you now. Or maybe it's the song you used to sing at church when you were a child. Something that you find comforts you and makes you feel, oh yes, God is real. I know he's real. Start to build some of those things into your life as a practice that you, you do it intentionally because you're building a scaffold. Just like you exercise because you're building your muscles, right? If you don't keep doing it, your muscles disappear and then you have to start again. It's really sad <laughs> and painful. <laughs> when you first start exercising, it feels like hard work and you have to remind yourself every day and you have to put it on your calendar and maybe find a friend who will do it with you. All of those things. Do that, but do it with scripture, prayer, worship, music, one or two things that you can start. And may I encourage you, particularly if you're in a community, to find a way to do this together regularly. Because there's something about doing these practices in a community where you've chosen each other for a period of time that will plant something in you that 25 years from now, you'll hear that song and you'll be back with those people in the throne room. God ha he, that's not a mistake, guys. God has given us those things. He, he, Jesus used them. The disciples used them. The early church used them. This is something that should be part of 
how we live our faith every day because it depends on the truth of God, it depends on us being intentional with the truth and with each other and being intentional with building the scaffold of our life. And so it's just as important as these other practices we have, coming to church on Sunday, exercising, eating healthily, all of those things that we actually work really hard at. This is something that can save your life, I promise you. How do I know it will save your life? Well, I'm going to finish with this. This was just a little story that brought back to me what is really important, why this is really important. Um, And it's something I want to encourage with parents because children, when you have your children in the home, you can do this for them to a point where they won't have to do it for themselves. This is an incredible gift you can give your children. And what it is, is you can choose just one, two, maybe three prayers or practices that you do every day, no matter what. And I know lots of people do this. They will pray with their children before they go to bed. We decided to say the Lord's Prayer with our children from before they could speak, from when they were in the womb. The Lord's Prayer was something we wanted them to know so deeply that it was part of their subconscious. And we knew that we might end up in a culture where nobody says the Lord's Prayer anymore. We were lucky enough, we had to say it at school. But that doesn't happen anymore in a lot of places. And so we decided they would learn it in, as the first words were coming out of their mouth so that they would always know it till the day they died and always have those words to pray. Um, The other one was this little song, which I used to sing to them when they went to sleep at night. And they might not remember this, but it's something that for me was the blessing over my children as a mother. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because Nicholas's parents were with us over Christmas. And during that time, his mom's oldest sister, who lives near Seattle on Friday Harbor, um, had a stroke. And his mom went out at the end of the trip to visit her. And she stayed there and for about a week and then phoned Nicholas on her way back. And I said to Nick, how's your mom doing? And he said, she was upset because she was afraid about what her last words would be to her sister. What, what do you, she said to Nick, What do you say to someone when it might be the last thing you ever say to them? Ever. And I said to him straight away, oh, you would say this blessing, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless in the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty dominion and power forever and ever. Amen. And then you say goodbye. That's what I would say. And that was what I would sing over my children every night. And 
That little story you just reminded me. I'm so grateful I have something to say to whoever I love if it's the last thing that I have to say. That's what I want to say to them because he will present them faultless in the presence of his glory. Isn't that an incredible blessing to pray over someone before they die? So um, I want you to find these little treasures that you can discover and then just cultivate in your life. And do it with your friends. If you've got family, do it with your children. Please give them that gift. And give yourself that gift as you go forward into life because there will be moments when you don't know what to say and you don't know what to think or pray. And if you've got that scaffolding in your life, it'll be there when you need it. So let's pray together.